Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In uncertain times, students seek truth. Your donation brings the Catholic intellectual tradition to elite universities. Act by December 31st, and your gift doubles, matched by up to $100,000. Go to ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash light of truth to illuminate minds this Christmas. That's ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash light of truth. Well, thank you all. It's an honor to be here at the University of North Florida and to begin your Thomistic Institute chapter's first talk. So thank you for welcoming me here this evening. The title of my lecture is this, Is Faith Irrational? Now, there are a number of things this title could indicate. So let me just begin by considering what what my topic in this lecture is going to really be about. And first, I think it's helpful to begin by talking about what it isn't about. So the first thing is, I'm not going to be this evening making an argument for the existence of God. Don't get me wrong, I love arguments for the existence of God. I have helped to organize a series on the arguments for the existence of God for our Aquinas 101 videos. And if you haven't heard about Aquinas 101, please tune in and watch. We have a great series of videos there on YouTube. We have and that we put up a, a new video each week. So, but despite that, I'm not going to be speaking about the existence of God per se this evening. That's not my task. I'm going to be simply asking the question whether a rational person can have faith in God. Second thing, I'm not going to be making an argument just about any old faith tradition. So I'm not talking about faith in general but I'm specifically talking about faith as it's understood in the Abrahamic traditions, but also even more specifically in the Catholic faith. There may be ways of escaping the accusation of irrationality in other faith traditions, but I will let the followers of those traditions make those arguments for themselves. My concern is to make sure that we can see how the Catholic faith is not irrational. The third thing is I I must note that I am not strictly going to be arguing for the rationality of the Catholic faith. I'm simply arguing that it is not irrational. And what is more, I will be arguing that one cannot show it to be irrational. Now you might think, that seems a rather small point to make, just to be arguing that the Catholic faith is not irrational. But note the last thing I said, that you can't Prove it to be irrational. That's actually a very big claim. That's a bold claim. And it's one that I think is important and that I really hold to. And I think we can talk about that and see how that can be the case this evening. But to begin then, we, I want to first consider why people might think that the Catholic faith is irrational. There are lots of different arguments against belief in God um, from a variety of different sectors. I'm just going to look at a couple of common arguments that I come across out there um, and just show why it is that though some people think that these arguments 
are against the rationality of the Catholic faith, I would like to show that, in fact, these don't really uh, prove what they claim to show. So the first of these arguments is that um, people tend to think that faith is irrational because they believe that it contradicts science. This is a common view that comes out of the dialectical approach to history of science promoted in the 19th century, which has unfortunately carried to the present day. The story goes that the Catholic Church and science have been at odds ever since the Galileo affair, and the discoveries of science have subsequently proven the Catholic Church to be wrong time and time again. Now, this narrative is, I would say, materially false, as can be shown in a couple of ways, first by way of example. The first way in which we can see that it's material false is just that a lot of the greatest, some of the greatest discoveries of science today were discovered by Catholic priests, all of whom died not thinking in any way that their discoveries were opposed to what the faith revealed. Copernicus was a Catholic priest in Poland. Gregor Mendel, the father of the theory of genetics, was, a, was an Augustinian priest. Georges Lemaitre, who gave us the Big Bang Theory of Cosmology, was also a Catholic priest from Belgium. It so we see that there are a lot of Catholics, but a lot of, a lot of priests even, who think that not only the study of science, but the study of modern science is important, and they have been making contributions to it for centuries. And so really, the Catholic faith has not been opposed to the development of science materially, but we also see that, in fact, the narrative is false, even theoretically. It's not like these priests and other scientists like, have their science on one end and their faith on the other, and there the twain shall meet. But rather, we see that many of them kind of bring, think that this is all part of the reality that God has made, and that the discoveries that we must see in science and the discoveries that we see in faith are, in fact, can work together, because they all come from the same God. We believe, after all, that truth is not compartmentalized. If you find truth in any science, in any study, it must cohere and not contradict with something found elsewhere. And so in the Catholic faith, we do think that the truths of science and the truths of faith must work together. We have to see how they do that. Now, there are ways in which I can go into this a little bit further. There are several discoveries in science that are supposed to be contrary to the Catholic faith, and people often will look at like the theory of evolution in particular as being something that is contrary to faith. I would say that we've actually spent a lot of time in the Thomistic Institute addressing these issues. We have a whole series on, again, Aquinas 101 on faith and science. I would highly suggest you looking at that. But we, uh, many of the, a couple of the brothers of my province have also put out a book called Thomistic Evolution, which takes the uh, kind of philosophy and theology of St. Thomas and uses it to try to understand the theory of evolution from a Catholic perspective, to show that, in fact, evolutionary theory is not contrary to the Catholic faith, but is understandable within that context. And so, rather than address those questions uh, in a light way tonight, I just want to point out that we have those resources, and I would encourage you to look at them if it's something that is of interest to you. And so, as a result, I think it's fairly obvious to see that the faith is not, is not irrational in that it doesn't really contradict science. We see faith and working scientists 
we see working scientists having faith and not seeing it as contrary to it. And so I think that a rational person who accepts the grounding, the findings of science, can also rationally accept the Catholic faith. Now another argument that is often brought against any particular religion, but certainly against uh, the Catholic religion, is an argument based upon the multiplicity of faiths. Right? There are a ton of religions out there, right? any two of which contradict one another in their beliefs. And people say, well, isn't it hubris to think that our faith is the correct one when all the other ones are wrong? Right? Doesn't that seem improbable? And wouldn't it be more rational just to think, well, maybe they're all wrong. If most of them are wrong, why not think that all of them are wrong? This line of reasoning has a compelling rhetorical force, but at a glance we can see why it's, it's, it is problematic from a logical perspective. The driving logic behind this type of argument is probabilistic, right? The idea is that given many equally likely, likely options, deciding that any individual option must be correct is unlikely when you look at it, when you look at it in comparison to the whole. And therefore, it would be irrational to believe any individual among this cohort uh, with, with firmness when it's as unlikely as the rest. Now, the first problem with this line of reasoning is that it treats all faiths equally, as equally likely, and I, which I just don't think is true. But we can grant that premise for now. We can say, okay, well, let's pretend, for instance, that all the faiths are equally likely true. Um, but is it, is it irrational to think that one is absolutely true and the others absolutely wrong? And I think that, in fact, we can make that decision even if, from an outsider's perspective, it looks like all of the other religions are equally likely. Why is this? Well, think about other types of other areas of our life. Think about, in particular, science. We have, of course, in, in physics, two principal theories. We have quantum physics and we have relativity, the theory of relativity. And these two highly effective theories in physics are nevertheless incompatible with one another. And so there's a whole kind of genre of trying to interpret uh, quantum mechanics and the theory of relativity in such a way that they can be brought together. There are a large variety of interpretations. And, and with a number of sub-theories and sub-interpretations, that try, to one, that try to solve the puzzles between these two, uh, these two great theories. And White Malone, one might even say that the variety of interpretations of physics could outnumber the variety of faiths. That's a hard thing to say. It's hard to figure out what counts as one faith and what counts as one theory when you have all these different sub-theories and sub-versions of different faiths. But regardless, right, it seems like you'd have the same problem in science that you would have in faith. And yet nobody thinks it's wrong for a scientist to be committed to the truth of one particular interpretation of physics. In fact, it is precisely by being committed to a particular interpretation of physics that research is done with greater strength, right? And that then there are theories, experimentations that help to develop our understanding of physics. Sometimes they're shown wrong, sometimes they're proved to be closer to reality, right? But the key is we don't think that somebody is irrational for choosing one theory among the wide varieties and saying that this one has to be right. Likewise, I think we can say the same for the faith. Just because there are a number of faith options out there does not mean that being deeply committed to the truth of one faith over and above the others is in some ways irrational. 
In fact, be people who are committed to the faith uh, and are committed to the rationality of their faith could do the research to, to show why it is that their faith is not only rational, but maybe even true. And there's a lot of benefit to that. There's, again, more that we could talk about here, but I want to move on to, uh, to the main topic. But before I get to that, let's consider one more argument against faith. And this is the most famous argument against faith. It is called the problem of evil. Now, I should say that this is really only a problem for those of us in the classical, what they call, theistic tradition. So, so religions that come from uh, the tradition following from Abraham, so Judaism, uh, Christianity, and Islam. The problem of evil is principally a problem for these traditions because we believe that there is only one God, that he is omnipotent, that is all power, that he is omniscient, that is all knowing, and that he is entirely good and in no way evil. And so the problem of evil, right, is a particular problem for these theistic traditions, as we call them. And so the question with the problem of evil is why would a good, omnipotent, and omniscient God allow evil to happen, especially if, as we claim, God loves his creatures? There are a lot of sophisticated discussions of this argument, and I think that theist philosophers have done a lot of work to show that though the experience of evil may lead people away from God, there is nothing in particular metaphysically that makes belief in God to be contrary uh, to, uh, to, to the existence of evil. I will not go into great detail, but the general approach that a theist has to the problem of evil is that God, that, the, that there's a hidden premise in this argument. The hidden premise is this, that uh, those who think the problem of evil is a problem for religion suppose that if God is good, he would prevent every kind of evil from occurring, which is not exactly true, because there are some goods that human beings can only develop in the face of adversity. And so the theist tradition says that God permits evil because he can always bring a better good out of it. And sometimes he will be able to bring a greater good than could have existed without that evil. So to give an example, we might give a more kind of like home, homely example on an earthly level. Think about a good parent. You have good parents, and they have to always make decisions about how to respond to the problems that their children have. And so let's think of an instance of maybe childhood bullying in the schoolyard. Right? The parent might have a, try to figure out, how do I help my child to get through this experience of bullying? Do I speak to the adults, the uh, teachers? Do I speak to the parents of the child and say, hey, can you, can you encourage them not to do bullying? That is certainly an option. But a parent might also decide to talk to her child and say, how, here are some steps for how you can overcome this. And in doing so, she might choose to go that route because in overcoming the bullying situation on his or her own, the child would gain, could gain more self-esteem and also be able to great, gain a greater strength because to be able to overcome adversity can build strength of character in the individual. If the parent decides to go that route, 
we wouldn't say that the, that the mom and dad are bad mom and dads, right? Because they allowed their child to suffer some evil, right? No, they, they say that there is a good that can come out of suffer, after, from suffering a little bit of evil in their lives. And so that's, we can see that in some circumstances, there are goods that can only be brought about when we overcome particular evils. So in this example, we can see why we don't have to say that a good God must eliminate every possible evil, that he can, of course, permit some evils for the sake of a greater good that he perceives and knows he will bring about. But wait, many say. All right, parents will not, may allow their children to undergo some evils, but there are a lot of things that they would never put their children into danger. Right? Uh, and they rightly intervene when irreparable harm could be done to a child. And it seems like God allows irreparable harm to occur to the people that he loves, as when they are injured or abused or even killed. Now, we would have to respond to this by saying there are undoubtedly terrible evils out there in ones which we as human beings should strive to prevent with all our hearts and that we should never permit to happen if we can stop them. But here's the thing about God. God can do what is impossible to us. And so though there may be many evils out there that you and I cannot fix, many sufferings that you and I cannot heal, that doesn't mean that an omnipotent God cannot heal. And so if you believe in an omnipotent, omniscient, and totally benevolent God, as we do, then even if we can't see how a situation can be fixed, we can know that if this God is real, he can certainly fix it. Because from a metaphysical perspective, being omnipotent means there is no evil that God himself cannot make better. And so there is no logical or metaphysical problem here. There might be an experiential problem where individuals will see this and say, I don't understand how God can make this better. But that's an experiential problem. It's not a metaphysical problem. Right? And so from the philosophical perspective, there is a logical and rational way to approach the problem of evil. And in fact, when, we, when theists look at sacred history, we see that many evils happened that God made an even better good come from. So in the history of Israel, right, when they were conquered by Babylon, the Babylonian kings came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and even tore down the temple itself. This must have been devastating to the people of Israel because it was only in the temple that they could properly worship God, properly offer sacrifice to him. And so that would be what would seem to them to be an irreparable harm. And yet it was precisely the people of Israel in Babylon who grew in greater faith and trust in God and led them not away from him, but to draw even closer to him. We can see a similar example in the life and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. That as, as Jesus died on the cross, his disciples might have looked at this and said, how can you possibly overcome that? He's now dead. 
how can we, how can we possibly continue following after him? And yet, if, if what we believe is true, he rose from the dead. And so God made something even better come from his death. That not only did we get Jesus back, but that he provided for us a way to life after death. And so the believer then can look at these examples and say, if God has done that in the past, though I may not be able to see how he can heal this particular evil situation now, I know that he has kept his promises, and I can trust that because he is omnipotent and omniscient, that he will keep his promises, especially this one. And he promises that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And so that's a brief response. Again, all of these, uh, the problem of evil and some of the other problems I looked at, each and every one of them has a lot of people who have looked at these questions and given them sophisticated answers. I don't need, to, I'm not going to go into too much detail. My simple point of reviewing these in a very brief manner was just to show that some of the very common arguments against the rationality of the faith are, are able to be responded to in a rational way. And so therefore, the believer is not irrational for believing in God because we do have a rational response to each of these questions. Even though people may not necessarily buy into the response, at least we can say that we do have an objective, considered view that can, try, that can answer these questions. Now, of course, that's only part of the, of the argument I wanted to make, which was, of course, to begin with, to show that faith is not irrational. But I also want to say that faith cannot be proven to be irrational. And again, that's a rather strong claim. And I've definitely not made that point yet, because there are not just these three arguments I looked at, but many other arguments against the faith and many other arguments people can bring against the faith. So why would I think that it's impossible to prove the faith to be irrational? So to answer that, I want to clarify what Catholics think, what Catholics believe about, understand faith to be, I should say. So in the Catholic tradition, and certainly in the Thomist tradition, we talk about uh, something called the formal object of faith. This is what it is that we believe when we say we have faith. And what St. Thomas Aquinas says the formal object of faith is, is something that he calls first truth. Well, what is first truth? First truth is God revealing himself to his people. That's what the object of faith is. The object of faith is God revealing himself to his people. And then there's another aspect of faith. The believer assenting or agreeing with to what God has revealed. So right off the bat, we should see that what I am talking about by faith is different than what a lot of people might think faith is when they go out and just have conversations about faith. Normally when we talk about faith in everyday parlance, we usually think about like a list of things that I believe. Right? And, but there are a list of things that I believe that I don't really have a convincing argument. So I'm just going to say I believe them. Right? Now, of course, th this is everyday English. 
But when Catholic theologians talk about faith, we don't just mean like a list of things that I think and kind of hope are true. What we think faith is, is God revealing himself to us. That God revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that what God says, that is what we believe. And what he says is this mysterious thing that we call first truth, the truth that comes from God himself. And so our faith, if it is true, is about what God says. It's not about what other human beings say. It's about what God says and says to each and every one of us individually, not just as a group. Now, we do think, of course, that faith can be articulated into different propositions or different statements. And we can talk about it in a way that's like a list of beliefs. You know, the most clearly articulated version of this is something that we call the creed, in which St. Thomas and, other, and others have called the symbol of faith. By the symbol of faith, what St. Thomas and other theologians mean is that the creed is a clear marker or sign of what God reveals. So as St. Thomas says, a man cannot believe unless the truth be proposed to him in such a way that it may be believed. Hence the need for the truth of the faith to be collected together so that it might be more easily proposed to all, lest anyone might stray from the truth through ignorance of it. It is from its being a collection of maxims of faith that the symbol takes its name. And so the symbol of faith, then, is going to be a kind of representation, and hopefully an accurate, and definitely an accurate representation, of how God reveals himself to us. But nevertheless, what we believe is not just this list of propositions, but what God is saying to us, and that these are articulated in a particular way in the creed. So that's first truth as it is presented to us. But then St. Thomas says that from our part, right, uh, we, faith is thinking with assent. That is, we see these propositions, and then we say, yes, this is true. And so faith in this sense is not so much the list of things that we believe, but our agreeing, yes, this has to be true. This is really what God is saying to us. And what Catholics think the faith is, is not just our decision, this has to be true as opposed to that, but rather what it is, is God moving our hearts to see this, this uh, proposition and to say, this is definitely true. It's not just, I think this is true, but there is a way in which the faith helps us to see that this thing must be true. That's why we talk about the faith as a grace, as a gift. And so the gift of faith to the believer, right, is a way in which God moves the believer not only to see what God is revealing, but to see that it is true, and to give his or her assent to what God is revealing. It is, in a way, an internal conviction that is hard to explain, 
but is nevertheless commonly experienced by believers who perceive that what is said in faith in a moment of insight, they see that it has to be true. I, I, I find this all the time with converts who for the longest time didn't believe in God and then something is proposed to them and it clicks and they say, oh my God, literally, you are here. This is true. And they recognize through an interior motion that this thing must, in fact, be true. This is why the Catholic tradition also calls faith a light. For in light, right, the light helps us to see. And in the light of faith, we are able to see clearly for a moment that a certain proposition, a certain fact, must be true. And we assent to it with power and conviction that comes from God alone. Again, it's not something that we can explain why we have assented to this. There is no argument that necessarily leads us to saying this has to be true. We just see it and believe it. This is why St. Thomas says you know, that even though there are many things we can know about God through natural reasoning processes, nevertheless, God reveals all of those things and other things about himself because if he didn't, only a few people, after a long period of time, and with a mixture of error, would get to know him. And so instead, God reveals his truths so that everyone can, can understand them, and then he himself helps us to see that it must be true. And so this notion of faith as a light and a movement that comes from God to assent to what he reveals about himself is why I think that the faith cannot be proven to be irrational. So when we think about faith in this way, as a light that comes from God that helps us to assent to, to what he reveals as true, we then see that it is very different than just thinking of faith as a list of things that I think must be correct. But rather, it's a way in which we are moved to say, to see that it must be true. And that with this understanding of faith, it cuts off an important objection to my claim that the faith cannot be proven to be irrational. The, one of the common objections to this claim is that, well, if it, if, it's not, if it can't be proven to be false, why would we believe in that theory? Because we think that every theory should be falsifiable. Right? This is a common uh, principle used in developing theories in contemporary science, right? um, but it's also applied to a lot of different theoretical discourses, that if you come up with a theory, there should be a way in which people can prove it wrong. And I, and I do agree that in general, a well-formulated theory, if it is to be credible, should be falsifiable. But note that what I've been saying about faith, faith is not a theory. Faith, in a way, in the way I have described it, in the way that the theologians of the Catholic Church have described it, is more like an experience. It's more even like the experiments that scientists do. It's something by which we see that something is true or false. That usually, usually when we do experiments in science, we do experiments to see, okay, does this verify or falsify the theory? Or we even say, does this theory match up with my experiences? Why? 
because there's something about everyday experiences that we don't question, right? We see things happening and we say, yes, of course, that has to be true, right? Like, I believe that this podium is firm, right? I'm not going to immediately fall through it. I may fall over it because it's a little unstable, but I'm not going to fall through it because it is firm, right? There's something about my experiences that help me to then realize whether or not a theory is true or false. In some of these experiences, in some of these things that we use to prove truth or truth, or the truth or falsity of a different theory, is something what our analytic philosophers will call properly basic beliefs. That these are things that help us to see the truth and falsity of other things, but are not themselves true or false. So properly basic beliefs are things that are so fundamental that we need them to understand the truths of other things, and that they themselves are not really falsifiable because they're just that basic. So not all beliefs fall into this category. Not even all experiences fall into this category. These have to be things that are very, very specific. So to be properly basic is to be something like to believe there's an external world, that I'm not just a brain in a bag or to believe that I can know things about the world, or to believe that my senses do give me an accurate, act, do give me access to reality around me, or the idea that the laws of logic work, that our minds can understand truth and falsity. These are beliefs which are so fundamental, they're never irrational to hold. And they're genuinely impossible to disprove to one who knowingly accepts them. This doesn't mean that no one denies them. You know, there are skeptics out there after all. But even skeptics have to have some properly basic beliefs upon which they ground their skepticism. For instance, like the idea that, that the only certainty is that everything is uncertain. Now, of course, that's not really a properly basic belief because it's a contradictory statement, and properly basic beliefs can't be contradictory in that way. But nevertheless, everybody who's trying to come to understand something must have something that is so basic in their belief system that it helps to show why something else can be true and why other things have to be false. And so then what I'm proposing this evening is that faith is one of these properly basic beliefs. It's something that's like an experience by which we judge the truth of other things, but is not itself proven by anything other than our experience of God moving us to say, yes, this proposition is true. And, there, and as a result, because it is so basic, it's not really the sort of thing that can be proven to be irrational. And so this is why people can believe in the faith, not have arguments for their faith, and not even really be able to explain clearly why it is they believe what they believe, and nevertheless not be irrational for doing this. Because they have a basic, what we might think, instinct that helps them to see, yes, this is true, and those other things are false. Now again, there's a good deal to unpack here. And I want to leave some time for questions and answers. 
But I think that at least my principal point has been shown. That if we take faith to be what, uh, what Catholic theologians have said it is, that it is God revealing himself, and it's a properly basic experience by which we recognize that these things are true, right? if that is the case, then not only is faith not irrational, it can't be proven to be irrational because it is so basic. But wait, you might be saying, how can this help me to believe? How can it convince someone who is not a believer to believe in God? And the first thing is, that's not the point of it, right? In, in a way, right, I'm not saying that the experience of faith of one person is going to be convincing to an unbeliever. It might be, right? Sometimes we see the power of one person's faith lead others to belief in God. Rather, my simple claim is that for those who believe and who can't explain every aspect of their faith, they are not irrational in doing so. That, in fact, they are being moved to believe by something that is more fundamental than rational argumentation, and that helps them to see the truth and falsity of other things in the world around us. But you may wonder, okay, but... If I'm a believer, how can I deepen my faith? Because there are, of course, many experiences where our faith wavers, right? And that's because our experience is really only a beginning. We have to build on that experience. And the answer to how is our faith to grow is really going to be different for each person. And so I would encourage you, of course, to ask God to help you to see him. If you're a person who doesn't believe but is seeking, it's okay to ask God to help you to see him. And if you are a believer but still struggle with things, again, ask God in prayer to help you to see him. It's something like, and if you're worried about whether or not you might be deluding yourself, it's at, something, it's at this stage where I think that something like Pascal's wager is helpful. You know, Pascal's wager is often listed among the proofs for the existence of God. But it's not really a proof for the existence of God. It's really a decision theory practice that helps us to determine why it is logical to choose belief in God when we have some doubts. Right? Because the wager shows us that the possible payoff for believing in God is infinitely great, whereas the possible value of not believing in God and being right is so low in value in comparison that it would be irrational to choose. And so that if you have a modicum of faith, Pascal's wager shows us that we should be encouraged to seek to deepen it because it is worth everything. And so the wager is not really, I think, a proof for the existence of God, but a way for the believer to see why it is rational to continually seek him, to seek to understand him, to seek to know him. And that though we may have questions, it gives us a reason to say, why should I continue trying to understand? And the answer to it is, because I have everything to gain, nothing to lose. And such an, an, an approach can then lead us to encounter the living God, to experience him on a personal level, and to allow him to lead us not only to believe, but to believe with all our hearts.
and allow us then to see the world, not just in faith, but even through the gift of wisdom, by which we can see how all things point back to himself. So if you do not believe, or do not believe as you would like, let me encourage you to continue to seek God. Don't accept half-hearted answers, but always seek him more deeply. Try to see how the things that we know by reason match up with the things that we know by faith. And why, and don't, don't settle again for half answers, but always search for the firm truth. And so it's my prayer that in doing this, you will encounter the living God and find that faith is not only not irrational, but it's utterly rational and it's life-giving. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.